Have you ever experienced complete and total darkness? I'm talking about an absence of light so complete that no matter how much you strain, you cannot make out anything. The first time I experienced that kind of darkness, I was 13 years old. I was visiting Mammoth Cave in Kentucky. Now, Mammoth Cave is actually the longest cave system known in the world. It has more than 600 kilometers of uh, passageways through it. But you don't have to get that far from the mouth of the cave before you become wholly dependent on a torch or a lantern or some kind of artificial light. So the tour guide told us that she was going to turn off all the lights. And she told us to keep our flashlights turned off. This was before the era of cell phones. It's probably more difficult today. And when those lights went off, it was darker than anything I had ever experienced. I could not believe how inky black everything was. No matter how much I opened my eyes, I couldn't see anything. I, I went like this, nothing, absolutely nothing. So before the young children who were with us completely lost it, they turned the lights back on. And it's a good thing they did because it's damp and slippery in these caves and navigating that place in the dark, well, somebody seriously could have gotten hurt. Now, if walking in darkness is potentially dangerous, how much more so is walking in spiritual darkness? This appears to be one of the Apostle Paul's concerns when he writes his letter to the church in Ephesus. After all, God had delivered these Christian believers from darkness, sin, and death at great cost, nothing less than the sac sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross. So the last thing that Paul wanted to hear was that any of these believers were squandering this great sacrifice by falling back into darkness. And so he encourages them. He instructs them to remain faithful, writing to them like a father writing to a son. He reminds them of the transformation that they have undergone. In the fifth chapter of Ephesians, Paul writes, For you were once in darkness, but now you are light. Paul then instructs them to remain in the light, live as children of light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. So far, so good. By God's grace, you are now children of light. So live like it. And when you do, you will produce good fruit. Fruit of goodness, righteousness, and truth. And then Paul begins to pivot. 
he writes, try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, there is a snake afoot in this congregation, tempting them to depart from the Lord. And so Paul warns them, if and when they fall into darkness, they must expose it. He writes, for it is shameful even to mention what such people do secretly, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For everything that becomes visible is light. So if it is so shameful to even mention the works of darkness, then why would we want to expose it and bring it to light? Because the light of truth brings it out into the open, making it visible. And if sin is visible, then it may be repented of, bringing sinners out of darkness and back into light. If we sin and then we sink into darkness and shame, keeping it hidden from everyone, sin's grip on us only becomes tighter and tighter. But when we confess our sins to God and to another trusted believer, when we bring our sins out into the light, their power over us is weakened. And when we confess our sins, the Lord is faithful to forgive us and to give us power to persevere in holiness. Now, there are certain sins that Paul was specifically concerned about in this section of the letter, namely sexual sins. Why does Paul bring up sexual immorality so much in his letters? Because God's laws concerning sexual activity were so completely at odds with what the Gentiles in the Roman Empire were used to. Now, while women were generally expected to remain chaste, to tell a pagan man living in Ephesus that he was not to have any sexual relations before marriage, and then he was to remain completely faithful to his wife alone for the rest of his life, that would sound ridiculous to him. After all, not even the Greek gods and goddesses followed that sexual ethic. In the Roman Empire, prostitution, mistresses, and the sexual exploitation of slaves and young people was common. In this culture, sex was about pursuing personal pleasure and exploiting one's power as much as it was about marriage and childbearing. The biblical vision of sex, on the other hand, is tied back to creation and even what it means to be human. Man and woman are created by God in God's image, one for the other. Therefore, 
a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. We read that in the second chapter of Genesis. In this way, the two become one and new life can be created. By God's design, sex was created for good, for the knitting together of husband and wife in love and the creation of new life in families. But people get hurt when sex is misused. Both women and men can be used, exploited, and cast aside. Children can be conceived without parents who care for them. As Lauren Winter has written, we make promises with our bodies that we don't intend to keep. This takes us far from God's loving plan for sex and marriage. What about those who do not marry? God's plan for them is to remain abstinent. As Jesus demonstrates, unmarried people can live meaningful and holy lives with close, loving relationships with family and friends. And as children of God, our families expand to our brothers and sisters in Christ. All of this, however, was a big adjustment for Gentiles converting to Christianity. It meant a huge lifestyle change, which was at odds with their culture and society. And so, as you might have guessed, some of these converts tried to follow Jesus while compromising in the area of sexuality. And others were willing to turn a blind eye to it and even make jokes about it. Paul warned them in no uncertain terms that the consequences of sin in all forms are deadly serious. He wrote, but fornication and impurity of any kind or greed must not even be mentioned among you as is proper among saints. Entirely out of place is obscene, silly, and vulgar talk, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Paul continued, be sure of this, that no fornicator or impure person, or one who is greedy, that is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So what is Paul saying? Is sexual immorality the unforgivable sin? What about greed and idolatry, which he also mentions? No. No, it's not that these sins are unforgivable. It's that too often, those committing them are reluctant to admit that they're doing anything wrong and that they even need to repent. It's easy to justify our sins to ourselves when we look around and everybody else is doing the same thing. Why should I have to change? And this is what Paul found so alarming. If people in the church did not take these sins seriously, then they are implicitly teaching those around them that sexual sin, greed, and idolatry are no big deal. The problem is 
is that these sins, like so many others, destroy people's lives and deform their souls. And when these sins become public, they undermine the witness of the church. Who among us has not heard about a preacher who has embezzled money, or an evangelist who has exploited women, or a priest who has abused children? As if the pain and suffering of those victims isn't enough, the ripple effects of those sins are long-lasting as they understandably drive people away from the church and also the saving love of Jesus Christ. Sin is a serious matter. Whether we want to admit to it or not, our sins, even our private ones that we think nobody knows about, affect us and the people around us. We belong to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so your faithfulness spurs us all on toward faithfulness. And your unrepentant sin can cause us doubt and discouragement. But when sinners repent of their sins, turning away from them and turning toward God, our collective faith is renewed. The fact of the matter is confession of sins is often what brings about revival. Now, is there a limit to how many times we can confess the same sin? We hope and pray that once is enough and that we will go and sin no more. But some of us, some of us might repent 490 times of the same sin committed over and over. The Lord knows our hearts. He meets us in our broken places. And by his Holy Spirit, he gives us power over sin. And he can even free us from our addictions. It may take time. It may take the involvement of other people. But the Lord is faithful. Earnestly seeking the Lord in a posture of repentance as we desire to walk in the light and walk away from our sins, that is altogether different from thinking that we can just follow Jesus and do whatever we want, be it gossiping, holding on to grudges, sexual immorality, or selfish greed. That's like pouring hot tar on a plant and expecting it to grow. It doesn't make sense. Sin leads us away from Jesus into darkness and to death. Faith, repentance, and obedience leads us into light and life. This is where our hope lies. The dramatic change from darkness to light, from death to life, is captured in what many people think 
is an early Christian hymn, perhaps even sung at baptisms, found in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14. Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Christian baptism, conversion to the faith, moving from darkness to light, this is nothing short of being risen from the dead. It cost Christ everything to make this possible for us. It will cost us something as well. Our pride, our sinful desires, our stubborn wills. It will lead us to repentance. Over and over, we will be reminded, for you once were darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. So friends, today, let us choose light. Let us choose light every day, laying down our sins and picking up our cross of obedience. Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Amen.